and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have made them become more real for us because we believe the more real they are in our minds, the more we'll be able to see how they apply to us in our lives, and we need all the help we can get. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I am so happy to have with me my dear friend and colleague and boss. Uh, this is Sean Hopkin, who is the uh, chairman of the Department of Ancient Scripture, which is the department uh, that I am in. And uh, Sean has been on the program a few times before and even with his father. So you're, if you've been with us for a while, you're familiar with him. But uh, he has degrees in, uh, I think, both Arabic and uh, Hebrew Bible from Texas, right? University of Texas. My, you you, my, you tell me. My Hebrew studies did Arabic literature as well. So I used uh, Hebrew and Arabic literature literature from medieval times. So and Spanish yeah. literature, but. Yeah. yeah, which is uh, so uh, this is a, a fun uh, one year. There was a week we spent uh, in Oxford together on a program together where you were looking at, uh, I think, Arabic texts there. And I was looking at uh, uh, excavation notes from uh, people who had excavated in Oxford before. But anyway, so we had a great time in Oxford and I am still unhappy that Sean won the croquet game. But I'm so uh, glad you admitted that, Carrie. Like, I, yeah. I remember it too, but my wife claims that I remember games incorrectly. <laughs> I was ahead the whole time, and then you still <laughs> killed me at the end. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, it was it was a good game there on the lawns of Oxford. So we're happy to have you with us, Sean. Thank uh, you. What else should we know about you? You're your father and uh, a bishop right now for the second time. I'm serving as a YSA bishop right now and and, uh, loving that, staying busy with that. And then for those who... Because you weren't staying busy as department chair, so it's a good thing they gave you something else to keep you busy. They are two different things, but they do feel similar at times. And it's sort of being department chair in one sense, in, in one sense, they're very different, but in another sense, they're similar in that like a bishop, you know, you can be serving in the nursery, then bishop, and then primary, and you know, yeah. whatever it is. So uh, it's my turn right now to be, uh, you know, pulling the wagon, so to speak. Uh, and then uh, I'll be very happy to hand that baton to whoever grabs it next. So that's sort of how this goes. Yeah, well, good luck to them is what I say. But anyway, okay. So, uh, and uh uh, anyway, you have a son that's just left on his mission, I think, as well, don't you? Got a son in New Zealand, and then I should probably give a shout out to our two grandchildren, Bennett and Brielle. Bennett, age three, Brielle, not quite one yet, and my wife is there with them uh, out of state, uh, but in a state of bliss herself right now. Ah, wonderful, wonderful. I have a three-year-old grandson. We'll have to get them together sometime. Yeah, but... yeah. All righty. Well, uh, here are some of the things that we're going to talk about today. We are going to focus on Matthew 16, not the whole reading assignment for Come Follow Me, but just Matthew 16, which is a crucial, crucial chapter. Uh, and in there, we're going to talk about uh, the Pharisees, the interaction with the Pharisees, and some things we can learn about that. And we're going to talk about uh, the sign that Christ gives of his death uh, and resurrection. They may not recognize it as that, and that will then tie into uh, talking about uh, who Christ asking who he is and Peter's testimony and, and lessons that we should learn from that. Uh, and, and I think that will all become very real for you. So, uh, Sean, why don't you lead us into that discussion? Good, and I'll just acknowledge, uh, as usual, uh, Dr. Muelstein uh, has, I hope you'll jump in at any time, and and if we say things slightly differently or come from a different angle, I, I think that's really positive and healthy, so. I agree. But, 
I will take us then to this discussion that comes, and they, they say the Pharisees also at the Sadducees came, tempting him, desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. That's verse one. And then they they get into this discussion, and he says that they're seeking for a sign. He ends up uh, giving them a pretty strong statement. It's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. And then I think there's a lesson and a caution for us as Latter-day Saints who are reading this that I want to suggest. So I want to jump for a moment to verses 11 and 12 after he has critiqued and, and warned his disciples of the Pharisees and Sadducees in of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in verse 6. They think he's talking about bread. They think he's talking about actual bread and he has to correct them. So let me read verses 11 and 12. How is it that you do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread, that you should be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees? Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So they were pretty oriented on where's my next meal coming from? They're wandering yeah. and they're, they're, you know, this is a, a real issue in ancient times for many in our day. It is not an <laughs> issue today, but for others yeah. it is. And I think especially as you're traveling around, I mean, they don't have homes or whatever else right now, right? They're traveling around. They're trying to rely on others for food. But uh, I know uh, if I were them, I would always be wondering, okay, where's my next meal coming from? Because I'm hungry. Right. I'm a I'm a modern person who lives in a very affluent time of the world, an affluent place in, you know, in the United States. I, I'm afraid I, st I could still be guilty of that. Where's When's my next meal? Yeah. Uh, Yep. So this is not surprising and, and even more so in their time and context, but I want to maybe express a caution for us that their primary challenge is that when he warns them about leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, they think about bread. Sometimes I worry that we as modern uh, Christians, as Latter-day Saints, we miss and we read beware of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, rather than the leaven or the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And that that can turn, sometimes we can lump an entire group and, and sort of in, in maybe even bordering on anti-Semitism uh, at times say, ah, here's the bad ones. And the, these are, and, and then we uh, use that on a group of people and we interact with Jewish friends, neighbors, and others in the world in our day, and if we then transpose Christ's concern about a certain doctrine and place it upon people that we know, that to me does not treat them as children of God with nuance, with faith, with fears, with good things, with uh, human things. And, and I think there's maybe, as they misunderstood and thought about bread, sometimes maybe we like it, maybe it's just easier for us to lump groups of people all into this one category. And I think we are wise. We're better Latter-day Saints if we exercise a whole lot of caution there. I, I couldn't agree more. And for uh, my audience who maybe didn't hear it, I'd refer them back to when we had some uh, two episodes, a roundtable discussion on the Pharisees, one with uh, Trevin Hatch and Avram Shannon and another with Jeff Chadwick. Um, and, and just kind of urge this caution, not only uh, should we not say, okay, all Jews are like the Pharisees and Sadducees, but even not are all Pharisees like other Pharisees and all Sadducees like other Sadducees. And then even those who have doctrine that's problematic, uh, let's separate the doctrine from them. Now, 
I'm not going to go so far as to say that those who are trying to kill the Savior, that that's not that's bad. All right. I'm, I'm going to agree with that. That's um, problematic doctrine. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but let's differentiate uh, between uh, all the different things going on rather than lump everything together, which is the simplest thing for our mind to do. And, and we have to do that uh, with many things to survive. And when we start doing it with people, it gets to be a problem. It does. I love what you said. And let me tag on a little bit further. So he's warning them of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I think we need to be cautious, as you've just indicated, not to say that Jesus is warning them of everything that the Pharisees and the Sadducees teach. There's a broader conversation that we don't have access to that. And there's there may be other things than what we can just see in this chapter. But what we can see in this text is something very specific. And then we can say, ah, now I can zero in and see what elicited the concern from Christ. And that's the thing that now, if the scripture is going to be useful, I'm not using them as a hammer to accuse other people of their issues. I'm using them to say, well, what was Christ concerned about? Now, I need to be careful not to manifest that or to avoid that concern in my own life. And the concern that that uh, starts all of this is that they are unwilling to recognize the signs of the times. They are unwilling, and, and maybe this is a very Latter-day Saint way of expressing what, what they're talking about, but they're unwilling to recognize what God is doing right at that time. And so for the Sadducees, maybe there's there's a way of thinking about things that, that closes up current evidence or revelation or realities uh, because, nope, we've already got all the answers. We don't need to be open to the fact that Jesus may be the Messiah. And then for the Pharisees, that uh, in, in different kinds of ways, that seems to be what Jesus is concerned about. And I would suggest it's potentially what he's concerned about when he, he uh, expresses concern to Joseph Smith about the creeds. And then yeah. I have to look at myself and say, how do I do this? How do I close myself down? If Jesus was standing in front of me and he didn't look, or maybe the circumstance is a little different than what I would expect, is my heart, are my heart and mind open to recognize God, uh, God's yeah. hand, the signs of the time, so to speak? And, let, and let's expand that not to just Jesus, but to his his prophets or in, in his day, his apostles, right? That's probably not what the, the apostles, the fishermen and whatever else, uh, the publicans are not exactly what people were looking for as emissaries of the Messiah. Mm. And in our day, uh, I, I think that the prophets and apostles are saying some things that are not what people are wanting them or expecting them to say. And so they want to reject them because they're not looking the way they look. And maybe we can sense this is the scriptures are real. Maybe we can just take one little element of, of the way he accuses them of that and, and uh, make it at least kind of real for me at least. And, and uh, I can then liken it to myself better. So, because when he, when he gets after them, he says, well, you can recognize this, this kind of a sign, but why don't you recognize this more important kind of a sign? And the sign that he uses is where he talks about if it's uh, in the evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather uh, today for the sky is red and lowering. So uh, I grew up, uh, well, I still am. My, my water skiing is my favorite thing, but I grew up water skiing all the time. Just anytime I could go, even if it was uh, a, 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 two hours of driving for 20 minutes of water skiing, I'd do it. Right. Why are you and my parents than me, Carrie? I don't like that. Well, not cooler, just more foolhardy. But um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, and my my dad taught me a saying, or maybe it's my mom, I can't remember the two of them, taught me a saying when uh, I was young that 
proved to be absolutely true. And it and it's 100% almost exactly the same that the crisis just saying. And it was red at night, sailor's delight, pink in the morning, sailor's warning. Hmm. And I found with, so I started, if we were going to go water skiing the next day, I always watched the sunset. And if it was really red, I knew we were going to be good. If it wasn't, I wasn't so sure I was going to set my alarm for six uh, because chances were it would not be good water skiing. And I never once, and also when we woke up, if it was pink or red, I'd say, yeah, not, might as well as not go. It's not going to be calm. Never found an exception to that ever. It was right 100% of the time. I do not know the, the physics behind that, but it was right 100% of the time. And so this is a sign that I absolutely knew and recognized. And yet I have to ask myself, I, I, I think I'm better at recognizing that sign than I am at recognizing when the prophets are telling me some things that I should be changing in my life. Right. I changed my behavior about water skiing based on that sign, probably more consistently than I changed my behavior as a teenager listening to the prophets. And I think that's exactly what the Savior is saying here. Okay, why can you do this, but you're not doing it on the more important things? And so let's all think through what we can do better in recognizing the signs that we're being given and and uh, preparing uh, accordingly. So. And and I would add, we tend to be really good, and this sort of fits right into the warning that you and I were discussing at the beginning. We tend to be really good at seeing, oh, look at how those people over there did not aren't recognizing the signs, <laughs> yeah. and, and we just tend to be blind uh, how we manifest many of those same issues. And I think Jesus is trying to to teach them and open them up, and. To this point, he's going to lead into a discussion here towards the end of this chapter. Do you recognize who I am? Right. And so that's right. sort of fascinating, this idea of understanding the hand of God, understanding God's prophets and, and those who are called to lead. And he's going to signify, Peter, you're, I'm, I'm calling you to lead. You know, so it's sort of fascinating how well these themes fit together in this text. Yeah, it is. Well, all right. Keep us keep us going. Okay, well, so the next place that I'm interested in going, Carrie, is as they're in the middle of this conversation, um, if we could look, it's it's back in verse four, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, there shall be no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas, and that's Jonas in the Greek, in Jonah, Yonah, in the Hebrew, and then he leaves and departs. So I want to talk about the sign of Jonah because we're going to talk about it again a little bit towards the end of the chapter, if that's okay. Yeah. So I think sometimes we don't, there's more to explore with this sign that it's it much more meaningful, much more redolent with sort of accompanying symbols and concepts. So I think often we think, okay, well, Jonah was swallowed by the whale, and then the whale, you know, uh, uh, sent him out on dry land three days later, and Jesus is prophesying in ways they don't understand of that. But I think if we dig into ancient Near Eastern and then Medi later Mediterranean views of what's going on with Jonah and the whale, it becomes much more powerful and significant and gives a much stronger message of who Jesus is. Uh, as you know, Carrie, and I'm sure you've talked about before on this podcast, the, the sea in the ancient Near East was often viewed, and certainly by uh, Israelites were part of this thinking, as a realm of chaos as associated even, so Sheol, the world of departed spirits, or the, the place of death, 
was uh, viewed as a watery kind of a place. So if you think about it, so it's under the ground and, and water springs up from out of the ground and springs and, and springs that spring up. Uh, and, and so well, well done. Yeah. yeah thank you. Um, <laughs> and so they are viewing the uh, the world of death the world of departed spirits sheol as as it's going to be called later on uh by the greeks hades right um as a watery kind of a place and so when jonah is swallowed by a whale and that whale takes him under the water that's very strongly death imagery right, right. and when, very similar to what paul uses this kind of imagery when he talks about baptism as being buried in the water and then coming up again right that's based out of this cultural impression yeah yeah perfect and and so and and then when miraculously against all expectations it should not happen human beings don't go underwater for three days certainly not in antiquity and emerge three days later intact and alive when jesus emerges from the tomb on the third day then it, it's really a powerful image and it becomes even more powerful when you think of what what we get in first peter of christ's descent into the world of departed spirits right that, that it's tying together this imagery jesus is saying potentially a whole lot more than hey i'm going to die and be resurrected he's talking about his mission in, in much more in, in much richer ways good and i was just going to add to that a little bit but i, I shouldn't uh, have interrupted because you probably let's we can develop that thought a little bit more but uh, along with the the water is a symbol of chaos and pre-creation or uncreation which is death right being uncreated and so on there's typically an idea that there's some kind of uh, chaotic monster that does the same thing. And in Israelite thought, it's a sea monster. It's, it's something in the sea, right? And so that that adds to this feeling with uh, Jonah and being swallowed by a sea creature that is big enough to swallow him, right? So, th I mean, this is in every way death and hell conquering, as it were, Jonah. And then he comes up again. And and so I love what you're saying because it, it I think it represents both Christ not only being resurrected, but conquering death and hell or overcoming death and hell cannot overcome him. He overcomes death and hell. And as he is doing so, he gives that opportunity, like you said, to people in the in the uh, spirit world, but also to those afterwards and so on. That it, it, It's so potent in all of this imagery of of uncreating and overcoming uncreation. Uh, that's wonderful. And all of this is going to prepare us. We're not quite ready yet, but all this is going to prepare us to really get a lot more out of Matthew 16, 15 through 19. Because remember, he's about to be told, I'm going to give you keys over death and hell, right? Yeah. So yeah. this is very interesting. But before we get there, there's a little bit more that I want to do. The name Jonah in Hebrew actually means dove. So I want you to think about that. The sign of Jonah is literally the sign of the dove. Now, uh -huh. we have seen the sign of the dove already in Christ's life. And it happened, of course, at his baptism, where he goes under the water, he descends out of the water, God proclaims, this is my son. And then at the sign of the dove is there present, the sign of life. And, and we, can, we can do a little bit more than that. I want you to think, now go back to the flood, and the evidence that there is new life after the flood and the moment when it sort of solidified is when the dove returns with a symbol of new life. 
Now we can go back even one more step all the way to the creation account. And this is, you, you can decide whether you think I'm stretching it too far, but this image of the spirit of God brooding or resting or hovering upon the waters. Upon the face of the deep, right? Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah. To home, right? Uh, seems to tie right together, blend all of this with creation. Oh, Absolutely. Jehovah. This isn't stretching. This is dead, dead on. Yeah, Anyways, thanks. keep going. Thanks, Gary. Yeah. And, and, and all of it then ties together so that when Christ says, hey, the sign I'm going to give them is the sign of the dove, the sign of Jonah, there's all kinds of stuff potentially embedded in that for his audience if they've got ears to hear. Man, that is so fantastic. And I'm I'm just going to confess here uh, on, on the episode that like I've heard and thought uh, about all this with the water and the chaos and everything else. I don't know why the whole Yonah dove thing never occurred to me, but the sign of the dove and how strongly that ties into the, I mean, I fully understand how baptism ties into this idea of pre-creative and, or death and then coming out, but he comes up and then the dove, how did I miss that all this time, Sean? Thank you for pointing that out. That's a fantastically potent symbol. And, and certainly I, you would hope that those who they may not have caught it at the moment, but those who were uh, aware of what happened when he was baptized, like John, who writes about it. I don't know if he was there, but he's aware of it. Uh, I think at some point they catch on to what he's saying and say, oh, there was more to that than I thought. I, I'm sure they would have caught on. I'm glad I finally did. Thank you. No, thank you, Carrie. And I will add the, the time I first started making these connections was interestingly enough in an analysis of the verses that we're about to get to where yeah. Jesus is going to say to Peter, blessed art thou Simon Barjona. And then as I dug in, in most manuscripts and in the manu most manuscripts for the gospel of John, he's actually not, his dad's name doesn't, maybe doesn't appear to be Jonah, but John actually, uh, Simon Bar John, Simon, Simon Johan, John. Yeah. what's Jesus doing here? Simon Barjona, right after he said, I'm going to give you the sign uh, of the dove. And then, of course, for us, uh, Carrie, we, we know when we read the sign of Jonah, then we're going to think of the biblical figure Jonah. But and they would have as well. But they're yeah. also the, the the meaning of those words would have been much more. It'd be like us saying, all I'm going to do is give you the sign of the dove. And we know somebody named Dove, but we're also going to think more easily about doves in general. Yeah. They would have, I think so. Brilliant. Fantastic stuff. Well, good. Thank you. Yeah, great. Thanks for uh, going there with me together. It's fun to do this with you so we can ping off each other with these kinds of things. That's what I love about this. Yeah, agreed. All right. Well, shall we go then next, Carrie, to the famous uh, proclamation here that uh, Peter's mm -hmm. going to make and then Jesus's response to that? Let's go to Caesarea Philippi. I love it there. Yeah, good. Well, so uh, do you want to present the the environs, the boundaries of Caesarea Philippi, or shall I? Sure. Uh, I, I'll just touch on it, and then you'll add uh, and correct. Um, or you can add to and take away from, since you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But um, so I, I don't know where they were when this other stuff was is going, but he now takes them as we get into uh, verse 13 of chapter 14, Matthew 14. They come into the coast. So think of that. It's, it's not coast as in... Uh, the seashore this is inland um but it means borders so they're coming into the borders of caesarea philippi so we'll just uh i'll just start and then you can 
to go wherever you want to go. But uh, Herod Antipas, so you will have uh, just heard uh, in the episode with Lamar and I um, talking about the different Herods. And so Herod Antipas is one of the sons of Herod that's down to the south, and he's married his brother's wife. Well, the brother is Herod Philip, and this is in the territory that Herod Philip owns or, or controls, I guess doesn't own, but he, he, he rules there. And uh, he has built a new capital, naming it after uh, Caesar and himself. So it's Caesarea Philippi. Today it's called Banyas. That's because there was a temple of Pan there, what I'll talk about in just a second. Well, actually, I'll let Sean talk about the, the temple of Pan and the caves and stuff. But there's a, a, a temple to Pan there. But in Arabic, they don't do peas, so peas become bees. So instead of it being Panias, as it was uh, in earlier times, it's Banyas. That's the, the modern name. But it's Caesarea Philippi. Uh, and there at Caesarea Philippi, there's this fantastic uh, complex of temples to pagan gods. So maybe I'll let you take it from there, Sean, unless you just plain don't want to. <laughs> no, that's great. And I will add, uh, in addition to Panias, the, in Old Testament times, this is the vicinity of what was known as Baal Gad and Baal Hermon, which you're at the Hermon Mountain there. Yeah, it's and... right on the, the foothill of the, the Hermon Mountain. You're right at the base of this really majestic, the, the most majestic mountain there uh, in in the environs, and and so it's got a long history actually of non-Israelite orientation and religious mm -hmm. worship. So Pan and Zeus and others that are worshipped there in in the times of Christ and and later, earlier on Baal, right? So you've got yeah. uh, it, it's interesting that this is where he takes them. And with associations of uh, whatever we want to call that non-Israelite religion, and yeah. it and I don't know that he goes right to that temple. My guess would be he's not in the the, the temple to Pan, but it's 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 up on the hillside. You can see it from a long ways away. So my guess is they can see it from wherever right. they're at. And and it probably you know you get this nice view of it as you, there, it's a very. Uh, verdant area so there's lots of trees yeah. so this may not have been perfect but but these are spectacular edifices that are going to be built there as well it's a pretty yeah. spectacular kind of uh, a setting and so yeah it, it's hard to imagine that he would have walked right up next to the temple of uh, zeus or the temple to pan you know the yeah. edifice for pan and and just don't, this, don't see the picture uh, hanging out picture the savior hanging out there a lot yeah. right but it is interesting that they they have to travel a ways. This is not in his normal location. It probably takes uh, two to three days to get up mm -hmm. there walking, and then and, and it gives them maybe time for contemplation. In fact, it's gonna say that I think it's in Luke that it talks about he's taking them away so that there can be time for prayer and contemplation, right? And mm -hmm. and so he's able to teach them. Sort of interesting that that pointer towards prayer also then connects with and precedes what Peter is about to say in response. So they have time. And then there's this very grand setting that's there. If you ever visit the Holy Land, it's it's a pretty fascinating kind of a space. The other thing we should add, Carrie, is that it's the source waters for one of the huge tributaries that's going to lead to the what was at that point the mighty Jordan River. And Yeah, yeah there are three headwaters of the Jordan River, and they're all right there coming out of Mount Hermon. They're all right next to each other, uh, but but probably the the one that at least today is easiest to see and, and largest is right there, and that's part of why it's so verdant. That's why there, there's a lot of growth, and there's a huge waterfall just down below there because of these waters and so on, uh, because 
there the the water's just springing forth the snow melts and goes through mount hermon and springs out right there and it's it's beautiful and and peaceful so with that in mind i want you to think about uh, the worship of uh, false gods here is going on and you also have water springing up out of the earth very clearly like just coming right up out of the mountain yeah. and then flowing really in mighty ways you might say like it, it it comes out large so to speak yeah. Right? yeah and it becomes a spectacular waterfall within a few hundred feet well 100 yards uh, a few hundred yards from there yeah yeah good so that's that's the setting here for this famous discussion where then as we talked about he's just sort of bothered and warning them about this doctrine that shuts down the ability to recognize the signs of the times. And, and then, as I had expressed it, maybe from my, my own uh, approach to this, recognize the Son of God. And, and certainly that connects textually with this conversation he's about to have. Yeah. So shall I read this, Carrie? Shall I read these Please. verses? Okay. Yeah. So if we want to start here in verse... 13, when Jesus came into the coast through the borders of Caesarea Philippi, that's what Carrie was just walking through, he asked his disciples saying, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? And so he uses son of man that could have some ambiguous connotation, right? It could be, uh, you know, the, the human, the son of man, or it could have sort of Daniel connotations. Carrie, right, and I, I can't remember if I've talked about that with my audience before, but in Daniel, son of man is a term that's used uh, in this vision where with the ancient of days and so on, but it takes on very messianic expectations. Uh, so it becomes a messianic phrase because of this vision that Daniel has in Daniel chapter seven. Yeah, good. Thank you. And so then verse 14, and they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist. Of course, John the Baptist was a very powerful figure. He's now dead, right? And so they're saying, ah, maybe you're John the Baptist, but that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? No, uh, but people keep thinking that John the Baptist has come back to life. I mean, that's what Herod uh, Antipas was afraid of. So I don't know why they keep thinking that John the Baptist is just going to come back to life and haunt them. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, he was intimidating enough to them. Uh, his corrective uh, message. Yeah. So uh, some say they're John the Baptist, others, some Elijah, others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And of course, we know from uh, the Old Testament story that Elijah is taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire. And as Latter-day Saints understand, it, he was translated and actually could return. And right. in and they have an expectation that he'll come back as well because of Malachi. So that, that, that's, that one I, I get, like this idea that, oh yeah, Elijah, he could be Elijah. He's supposed to come back and he's been doing a lot of miracles like Elijah. Yep. And and lo and behold, he is going to come back. The next chapter, we're going to see Elijah come to the Mount of right. Transfiguration, right? So, so and he, in a way, Christ is a, a, an Elias, or a, I mean, he does fulfill some of that role of, of coming to prepare the way for the covenant and so on. So uh, in, in a way, that's correct. Not fully, but not, and certainly not the way they're thinking of it, but in a way it is. Good. Agreed. All right. So verse 15. So here's what everybody else says. And then he digs in, right? He does not let them off the hook. Yeah. They're giving sort of, well, here's what this person says. Here's what that other person says. He says, okay, who do you say that I am? And then this powerful statement, President Kimball later on is going to talk about this when uh, he's standing in a cathedral and say, I hold the keys, right? As, as this, this is going to uh, turn out, this section is uh, the conversation. So, Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ or the Messiah, the son of the living God. This is not ambiguous. This is very clear. And it that identification was most clearly made 
at the baptism of Christ, right? When uh, the Father says it from heaven. I think it's been clear from the beginning, but it's very clearly said there. And and I would add, uh, while the Father says it, and you have people in, in the book of John, you have some people there in that first chapter saying, okay, he's the Son of God. For the most part, and you don't get it in the other uh, gospel right. books, and for the most part, it seems like people aren't figuring this out. So I, yeah. I think it's worth, and, and I hope I'm not stealing your thunder if this is where you're going to go, but... Um, I think it's worth exploring the the different degrees that people seem to have to go through as they recognize who Christ is, right? So you might first recognize him as, well, as the son of a carpenter, right? All sorts of people recognize him that way, and, and some people never get beyond that. Um, and some people recognize him as a great teacher, as a rabbi, right, with followers, and he teaches great things. And honestly, that's where a lot of the world is today. He's a great teacher. Others start to, because of his, his miracles that John calls signs, right? Other people start to recognize that he is a great prophet, even comparable or, or uh, equal to Elijah and Elisha, right? But because some of his miracles are even surpassing that, many are starting to recognize him as the Messiah. Now, the, the, the struggle we have as Latter-day Saints is that we equate Messiah with Son of God, but we need to recognize they did not. And so it is yet another step to you go beyond saying Messiah to saying Son of God, which for most of them would have been blasphemy. They would not think that you will see a Son of God on earth, right? That's the kind of things that the Greeks and the Romans believe, not us Jews. They believe you got Hercules and whoever else, right? That, um, but we're not looking for a Son of God. There's God, and then there's everyone else, and the top of the everyone else is Messiah, right? And, and so to take that extra step uh to say and it, i think that it's pretty clear that there are times that there are, the apostles are struggling with understanding that step and still now aren't fully understanding what it means um but you know when they when he calms the water so that they don't die they're like what kind of man is this if you think he's the son of god that might not be quite as surprising right I, I, they're they're coming to realize but at this point it becomes clear they have all come to well i don't know if we can say all but peter seems to be representing the group they have come to realize he is not just a great prophet or a great teacher or even the Messiah. He is beyond that. He is the Son of God, and that's a really significant thing. And I think we should stop and ask ourselves where we really are uh, in that realization process. And, and I guess we could take charge of our own testimony, as it were, um, and make sure that we have a testimony of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And, and if that is the case, that changes it from a messianic figure who will come and save the community, but that changes it. I, God and the Son of God can do anything. There is nothing yeah. impossible for God, right? And so then all of a sudden, it, it changes the very ground we walk on to recognize Christ as the Son of God, I would say. I would agree very, love, very much. I love, love what you just walked us through. So, So with that in mind, Peter, I, I agree with you that he's representing the others, but clearly this is his, he's gone through his own experience and Jesus is going to acknowledge it because he answers and says, blessed art thou Simon Barjona for flesh and blood hath not revealed unto thee. You didn't hear this from somebody else, so to speak. Now yep. the father did declare it at the baptism. So I don't know if there's a nod to that moment or not, but, but you, my father, which is in heaven has revealed it 
to you. And so now we begin to get a sense for why this passage has been so meaningful to Latter-day Saints, because there are all of these potential messages, particularly as the passage is going to go forth, and, and we'll keep reading it. But let me pause for a moment and acknowledge again, Simon, son of the dove. Now, his father's name may have been Jonah, and so he may just be calling him his dad's name. But in most manuscripts, particularly the manuscripts that come from John, he is actually called Simon Bar-John. And so his probably more likely that his dad's name is John and that Jesus is doing something else here. Yeah, it's Simon, a play on words. They're, they're close. Johan and Jonah. Exactly. Uh, I think he's intentionally making a play on words there. Yeah, absolutely. And so then if indeed that's what's going on, he's saying that they would have noticed that Simon would have noticed it, right? You <laughs> yeah. are born of the dove, born of, if we want to make those connections, born of the spirit, the sign of the spirit at Jesus baptism. We've already got this connection with the fathers revealed it to you. And so now we have revelation coming to an individual that is going to give him some foundational rock to stand on. And that revelation, most importantly and most powerfully, is Jesus is the Son of God, as Carrie was just beautifully testifying of. Uh, I think that's so powerful. And, and I would love to just stop and, and tell our, our listening audience, and hopefully they can in turn tell their, their children or students in Sunday school or whatever else. Um, this is a question you have to ask yourself. Are you there? Has this been revealed to you not by flesh and blood? But, and then this goes back to what President Nelson's talking about. Take charge of your own testimony. Get, get this answer. Has it been revealed to you not by flesh and blood, but by the Holy Ghost? And if so, then great. You are actually a son or a, a bar or a bot, a son or a daughter of the dove. Uh, meaning that, that, yes, you're a son of God and your testimony is born of the Holy Ghost. It's it's born through revelation. If not, then start to take the steps that will get you there, primarily studying the life uh, and teachings and doctrine of Christ uh, in the Book of Mormon or in the New Testament or Old Testament or wherever. But uh, if that's not where you are, you can get there. The Spirit loves to bear uh, testimony of, of nothing else as much as it loves to bear testimony that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and uh, uh, that testimony awaits you. Yeah, I, I, thank you for that. And if you think, you, you talked about the Book of Mormon, and it's consistent witness that we have to be born again, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, John is going to use this imagery, you have to be born of water and born of the Spirit, uh, born from above, right? There have to be two births, so to speak. And that he, there may be an implication here that this conversion, this testimony that's come to Peter helps him be born again, helps him himself to become a new figure. And then, of course, we're going to get, he's going to talk to him. And in John, we get it earlier. We get it all the way back in chapter one of John, this, this other name of Peter, Rock or Rocky, Kephas in, mm -hmm. in Aramaic. Um, but here we get it here, right as he's talking about this witness, and he calls him Simon Barjona. So, there's some really beautiful concepts. Now, it's not just the testimony that comes to him as an individual, as what Christ is about to say, depending on how mm -hmm. we interpret what he's going to say, we'll walk through this. It potentially, and feel how Latter-day Saint this is, why this is, uh, is so beautiful to us, a testimony of Christ to what is going to be the presiding authority 
in this new church that is going to be built, right? And so you could potentially see connections here to the power and importance, central importance of personal testimony, but also of the witness of our leader that revelation comes to a prophetic head and then that prophetic head leads out with his people as he points them to Christ. Uh, and, and so that that possibility, I think, it also bears mentioning here before we keep reading and see that play out. So anything Very you want to say before we keep reading, Carrie? No, no, let's uh, I, I can hardly wait to get to verse 18. I'm just champing at the bit. So let's go there. <laughs> I'm taking too long. Here we go. No, no, uh, no, you're not taking too long, but it's just exciting to me. So here we go. So let's do it. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now. Carrie, do you want to take the lead here or shall I keep talking? No, you go, you go ahead. So there's been a Protestant uh, discussion here has noted that in the Greek, you have two different words. Petros is sort of a, a rock, an individual rock. Petra is a foundation rock. Now, there is a challenge with that interpretation, and that is that if Jesus is speaking, he's speaking in Aramaic, and Kephas doesn't do that. Like, the only way you can say a male name in Greek is to say Petros. You can't call Peter Petra. And so it's possible that as the Greek of Matthew is being written, that it's trying to teach us something. It's also possible that that's just the only way to translate Kephas. Right. And so and regardless, certainly, however, the Savior said it, he didn't say it with this different feminine and, and masculine. So they may be teaching us something correct, but it's not how the Savior said it. Yes, yes. Right. And so what that means then potentially is that he's saying, I'm going to build this new church, Peter, on you. Another way of understanding this, Latter-day Saints have all, uh, understood it this way often. So a presiding priest of authority, there's going to be, I'm, I'm creating an organization here. And if you think of tie-ins, he's building, in, in the verse we're going to continue to read, he's building on imagery from Isaiah 22, which is Eliakim, this Eliakim passage where I'm going to put authority on your shoulders and I'm going to dress you in a robe and uh, I'm going to elevate you and, and I'm going to make you this beautiful language there in Isaiah 22. I'm going to quote it exactly. I'm going to make you as a nail in a sure place uh, is what Isaiah is going to say to him. And, and I'm going to, whatever you bind can be, I'm going to give you a power to bind and loose to open and shut. And so now. By yeah, and that's all from Isaiah 22. Thank you. Yep. I'm just quoting uh, straight from Isaiah 22. Uh, and, and so now then the implication is Peter I'm creating a new organization here, and you, as as we might think of it, are going to be the new high priest of this organization. You, I'm going to, I'm organizing it, so to speak, and I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. It is, let's go ahead and read that uh, in verse uh, 19. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And, and so he's clearly giving Peter, or promising Peter, I should say, authority here to lead out. You've got a witness. And so now Latter-day Saints might see connections to priesthood authority, to uh, priesthood office leading Christ's organization to the beginnings of an organizational structure. Ecclesia is a word that in Jesus's day probably would have, it, 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 he probably would have used the word kahal from the Aramaic, yeah. which is a gathering, right? Yeah. Um, so we wouldn't, they wouldn't have used the word ecclesia in quite that way in Jesus's day, but he's speaking Aramaic anyway. By the time the Greek of Matthew comes, then there, there would have been an understanding of ecclesia with church a little closer to what we would understand today. Right. 
So all kinds of implications, and there's more for us to dig into, but I should probably pause and let Carrie fix or, or read. Well, not fix, but I just want to expand a little bit on um, your, what you're saying with Isaiah. Let's let's talk about Eliakim just a little bit, because I think talking about him will help us understand. I, I think that uh, his apostles would have recognized the reference to the Isaiah reference uh, to Eliakim and would have automatically seen this, because uh, if we understand who Eliakim is, he is the steward, and and if you go back to the podcast last year, you can see us talking about this a lot when we do Isaiah 22, but he is the steward uh, of the king's house, which makes him, in the end, like second in charge in the kingdom. So he's the one that ends up, he's Hezekiah's steward, and he's the one that goes out and uh, kind of interacts with the Assyrians when they come and talk to them on the wall and so on like that. But I want you to think about that what that means. So first of all, the king is the king. But the steward is the person who is authorized to represent the king and given the authority to represent the king. And that's why he can can open something and no one else can can shut it except for the king. And he can can uh, close something and no one else can open it except for the king. Right. He is the steward. And remember, stewards represent the king. Well, now think about if you understand Eliakim's role in that way. And Christ is saying, I am making you, basically is saying, I'm like, I'm making you Eliakim. They will understand Christ. And the, the Messiah thing still for the apostles has kingship in mind. And that's not incorrect. It's just not going to happen exactly the way they think at exactly the time they think. But Christ is king. Let's be clear of that. And so uh, it, it, they will understand this as, I believe, Christ is the king, but Peter is his steward who will mm-hmm. represent him and have his authority uh, to do things. And that is actually how I understand our prophet, uh, who the king is still Christ. He still leads the church, but the prophet represents him on the earth with his authority. And and I think that that would have been intuited by those around Peter, and hopefully we can understand it a little bit better by investigating this parallel with Eliakim and the whole um, uh, shut and, and close and, and so on. Terry, that is spectacular. In fact, I don't think I've ever made that connection you made of the king and the steward and then Christ and Peter. That That is really helpful. And just to make sure, because you're, you're saving us from me bringing in this random reference and just uh, assuming, and then let's be off to the races. Let's pause for just another moment so that I can read to you from Isaiah 22. So you see just how closely the two passages do connect with each other. And it shall come to, this is Isaiah 22, starting verse 20. It shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle. I will commit thy government into his hand and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David will I lay, uh, let's see, I lost my place. The key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder so he shall open and none shall shut he shall shut and none shall open. Uh, And so you can see then if we go back to Matthew 16, that what he's saying here to Peter is, uh, the gates fail shall not prevail against. I'll give unto him the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We just read about the key of the house of David, right? What's over there shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What's over there shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So just to make those tie together as clear as possible. And and I would actually love to see what the Aramaic was, because my guess would be that the way the Savior said it actually matched just a little bit more mm-hmm. with Isaiah than the way it ends up getting translated uh, into Greek, probably by people who didn't fully recognize the illusion that, that would have been uh, recognized at the time. 
mm. uh, when when it's getting translated into the Greek. But anyway, I, I think it's pretty powerful stuff. Uh, I think so too. And let let's just uh, go ahead and add. There are a lot of ways to understand who the rock is, and clearly yeah. Christ is the foundation. But Paul right. himself is going to call, uh, you know, talk about the the prophets as and apostles as foundations, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he's later going to talk about that. He talks about Peter, James, and John as pillars to the house of God. And so this is not foreign. So is Christ the foundation absolutely but then you know there, others are going to use this imagery of prophetic figures building helping build this house and being in that foundation right. stage of the house and sometimes christ is just called like the cornerstone right well there's four yep. corner cornerstones um and so i think they would would hear that imagery as well yeah wonderful uh maybe, maybe i can just add in one thing that eric huntsman actually taught me so eric huntsman's been on the the podcast before and hopefully uh, our audience will remember him he did john one with us if you want to go back and listen to that but um uh he he this is how he teaches it in his class and when i saw this uh, it helped me i i think there's some truth to this so as you said there are a lot of ways to understand what does this mean this rock uh that it's being built on and and often we say it's the rock of revelation and I think that's because we want to say it's not the Pope, uh, although I don't know why, because we actually believe that in some ways it is right now President Nelson, but the president of the church. Right. I mean, there and President uh, Kimball certainly seemed to understand it in that way. He saw himself as being Peter's successor and in this particular scene in, in particular and filling that role and it being built on on him in a way. Right. He acknowledges Christ, but then through him. So I don't know that we should reject that notion that it's it is Peter, but it's also the rock of revelation. Eric ties those together in an interesting way where he says, really, in some ways, what it is, is it is the revelation that we receive through apostolic testimony. Mm. And what he means by that, and, and this is true. The reason I have a testimony of Christ, I, I, I'm going to confess in this mortality, mortal life and mortality, I have not seen Christ. Uh, I just haven't. I gain my testimony by reading the a testimony of apostles who have, whether that be Joseph Smith or whether that be Peter and Matthew and John. Their testimony is when then the spirit of revelation came to me and revealed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the way we've been talking about. And so it is a combination of uh, apostolic authority and apostolic testimony and revelation from the Holy Ghost that my testimony is born from. And we need all three of those things uh, to guide us. And so I, I think this is an all of the above answer. Why do we have to choose one of those interpretations when I think actually it is all of them? And so I'm grateful to Eric Huntsman for helping me see it that way. I love that. And let's just add to what you were just saying, Carrie. It's sort of fun that in first Peter, uh, so, oh, sorry, second Peter, second Peter chapter one, verse 19. Let me read that to you. It, remember, Jesus calls uh, Simon Cephas or rock. Mm -hmm. And then he's going to say, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. Well, if we're thinking of ancient high priests that sort of led the ancient temple community, the Urim and Thummim, 
mm-hmm. was important there. We Which means that. lights and perfections, right? Just to remind exactly, everyone. Exactly. And and the Dead Sea Scrolls community, actually, uh, they talk about Urim and Thummim and about how it would function through the principle of light. It would sort of light up. That's their understanding of it anyway. And, and so he's going to say earlier, uh, he's going to say, this word of prophecy shines in a dark place and it's connected to the knowledge of Jesus for the attributes of godliness be in you and abound. This is now second Peter one, eight, they make you that uh, ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So Peter, his witness and right there in Matthew 16, his witness for me lights up my heart and my soul. His word of faith engenders faith in me. That then leads me to a place of prayer when then hopefully the the, the desire that Carrie's been uh, encouraging all of us is that we gain our own word of prophecy that Christ is the Son of God. Amen. Amen. Well, we could do we could we could do some a few other fun things, but we probably ought to start to bring that to close that adding on to that may be a mistake. It is interesting to note that uh, in Jewish, uh, some Jewish understanding and legends, uh, the there's a rock in the Holy of Holies that then they understood as a gateway to Sheol, like the thing that holds back the world of departed spirits and is the gateway to the world of departed spirits. And so then if you, if you want to go even further and think of things that are exciting to Latter-day Saints and think about President Nelson holding the keys over the work of both the living and the dead, that's that's another really fun connection potentially for us as Latter Day Saints. I, I agree, and that that's worth talking about here and tying into your early discussion about Jonah, because uh, a lot of people will talk about how what you have here, you've got this temple to Pan and Zeus and so on, but there's also a big cave right there, and uh, and typically uh, in the ancient world, temple complexes that had a cave, the cave part would be associated with Pluto or Hades, or the realm of the dead, right? And and so, uh, again, with that in the background, uh, as he says uh, in, uh, which verse is it? Uh, verse 18, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Sheol, shall not prevail against it. Um, he's saying this with potentially a, a temple that, uh, other people, you know, pagans would have associated with Hades or Sheol behind him, having just used this sign of Jonah with all of the symbolism of hell and overcoming or or of death and hell and or Sheol, however you want to say it, and have overcoming that and calling him Simon Bar Jonah, which I hadn't really noticed before. But now I see how that ties into this whole discussion and the idea of 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 death not overcoming it. So in some ways you can think of the gates of hell, meaning Satan will rage against this work and won't be able to stop it. But in some ways it's death will rage against this work and won't be able to stop it. And as you said, I'm giving you keys to bind things on both sides of the veil. So death will not be able to affect what you are trying to do. As President Nelson would say, we're, we're, we're gathering Israel on both sides of the veil, right? Anything you do, anything for anyone on both sides of the veil, you're gathering Israel. The, death can't stop us from doing God's work. If, if someone we know has died, it doesn't matter because President Nelson or Peter held or, or holds the keys to make it so that that is not a barrier for us. And, and so I think with, uh, with that 
potential symbolism of the temple there and all of the discussion about Jonah and, and so on and the waters springing forth right there that are waters of life instead of of uh, these waters of, of uh, uncreation and so on. There, there are just so many symbols that make this a profound moment for the apostles, and I hope it's becoming that kind of profound moment for us, um, that it is Christ who makes it possible for those barriers to go down, and because he gives that authority to his uh, his representatives on earth, that we can have those barriers torn apart for us in some ways, even right now. Uh, that is so well said, and let me just uh, point one other connection, and that is the sign of Jonah is Christ descending into the world of departed spirits, which is First Peter, which is yeah. where we get this discussion of that. And then think of that tie-in to what that means for Latter-day Saints when we think about temple work and redeeming yep. Israel on both sides of the veil. And yeah. and then one last and go read section one thirty-eight in association with that, right? But anyway, sorry, keep going. Like one thirty-eight, um, yeah. and then one last thought. This, this thing, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So for Roman Catholics, of course, it's very important sort to point uh, their sort of uh, lineage, authority lineage, back to Peter, who they would see as the first bishop. And there's been a lot of people who have talked about whether that it can be appropriately done or not. And there's a lot of discussion about that. For Latter-day Saints, how powerful of a witness is it to have Peter... I mean, what what better evidence is there the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the work or against Peter than to have Peter descend out of the heavens to give the keys to pass keys on to the head of Joseph Smith and others. Yeah. Hell has not prevailed against this work. It looked like it was going to. It has not. Peter is still alive because of the resurrection of the, the it enabled by the son of God that he proclaimed. And he's going to descend from heaven to carry that work forward and pass on the same keys that were given to him in the latter days. It, it Hell was, couldn't hold him back from that and, and yeah. uh, from making it so that it can't hold us back either. Uh, that's so well said, Sean. Well, You're a poet. Such, such an exciting, uh, such an exciting passage, I think, for both of us. And like I said, Kerry has plenty that he could have done here, but he was gracious to let me do some of this. And, and it's, uh, it's always done better two of us together. Yeah, agreed. So that that's sort of what I want to talk about. I, I just you can tell uh, both of us love this passage. This passage is so rich for Latter-day Saint readers. I, I couldn't agree more. And then, uh, of course, I guess we'll just uh, end on this and it will be the teaser um, for the next time, of course, we could talk about uh, then Peter not understanding uh, Christ still saying that he's going to die and and Christ having to get after him. So we can still see Peter's still a work in process, even as he does this and so on. But the, the teaser will be that uh, this is only where he's promising Peter those keys and the, the keys are actually bestowed on the Mount of Transfiguration, which we'll do in a separate episode. But uh, it's it's an episode that you should tune in for. So. Uh, thank you so much, Sean. I really, really love conversations with you, and I've uh, been energized and and uh, edified as we've talked about this together and felt my testimony of Christ as the Son of God strengthened and have rejoiced in the opportunity to bear a testimony that he is the Son of God and that he did overcome death, and I'm so grateful for that. So thank you for that, Sean. Any last uh, words you'd like to impart before we we just say goodbye? 
just uh, the same to you and i do want to uh, lift my witness there with yours uh, the reality of the son of god that changes uh, everything for me in the very ground i walk on and so i'll close with that witness as well thank you amen